there's definitely different levels of collaboration. And really what I'm learning, the, the biggest thing is, is manpower to be able to collaborate, especially with graduate students. I had, there are those cherry on top experiments where someone would come to me and say, hey, we've got this one final question and you've got the expertise to, to answer that question. You know, it's like one, fig, one panel of a figure. And those are often easy decisions to make if I have, you know, the students or the postdoc are able to do that. And those are almost always a yes. I'm T. Nguyen for Strategy for Scientists at the University of California, San Francisco. In this podcast, I talked to Brad Greeter, an assistant professor at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. His research focuses on how the brain adapts to drive reward-like behaviors, and a primary technique used in his lab is electrophysiology. As you can imagine, he's engaged in several types of collaborations internally and externally. And in his first four years, he's been awarded an R01. I thought he was a great person to talk to about strategic collaborations. To start the interview, I asked Brad what factors into his decision-making when taking on a postdoc. An ideal world would just be based on their skill set. But the reality is at these early stages, I'm looking at are they eager to learn? Because as a new assistant professor, well, relatively new assistant professor, what I found is that you're not going to find that perfect candidate to fit that perfect role. I took on a, a postdoc not too long ago who turned out to be awesome. She did in vivo electrophysiology, which is very different. The work we do in the lab is slice electrophysiology, so ex vivo physiology. And it sounds similar, but it's actually really different. But she wanted to learn uh, the components of uh, ex vivo physiology and so I brought her into the lab, and it, there was a six-month learning curve. And with a postdoc, you kind of want them to hit the ground running. But like I said, it took her about six months to do that. But once she did, it was, it was fantastic because she had a systems approach to what I call a molecular lab, a molecular question. And it was really able to open my eyes to actually approaching this from her perspective in the systems level in addition to the molecular level. So she was able to contribute a lot to that process as well. One of Brad's approaches is taking on a postdoc who can bring a new perspective to the lab. I asked Brad about another phase. When a postdoc is starting her, his, or their own lab, what does the conversation sound like when they're discussing who works on the project? Does the postdoc take it, make it their own? Does it stay in his lab? I asked Brad's approach to this new role and collaboration. We're finishing up a few papers that she's got, for example, a few manuscripts that we're going to wrap up and move out. We don't have any specific collaboration set up but we you know it's the questions are still there she's she's still starting to get going and um, at these early stages you don't really want to collaborate too much with your former mentor because you got to build on your own. Brad mentioned that the primary technical skill his lab uses is electrophysiology. He is invited to collaborate a lot so I asked how he approaches those requests and how he decides with whom to collaborate. Still learning on that curve <laughs> that is a steep curve so Recently, I've been asked more and more to collaborate on R01s, where we get, you know, 5% effort or 10% effort, and those are really the ones that I have to really start to think about. I was recently asked to be on a collaborator on an R01, and they requested 10% effort on my part. And as I looked, dove deeper into that research proposal, it was more like a 50% effort type effect, and and ultimately, I I, I can't devote 50% of my effort to something that's not directly in line with my interest. It, it overlaps, but it's not direct, It's not going to benefit me to the level of 50%. So 
so and, and not only is it my commitment, but it's also the commitment of my trainees because the reality is is you know the, it's going to be that postdoc that's collecting that data, and if I can't get them interested in it, you know I can't collect that data anymore. I sit behind a desk now, so I have to get them interested as well. Everybody has beautiful questions. You know, there's all kinds of beautiful questions. You'd like to be able to help everybody out, but what I've learned recently is it's it's more about again refocusing on the mentorship. And what does I get from my students too? You know, and does the student or the postdoc, does the middle authorship help them? Is it beneficial for a future, for a long-term collaboration, or is this a short-term collaboration? The short-term collaborations, where like I said, where it's a figure or two, those are fruitful so far that I found. The long-term collaborations, you've really got to be devoted to it. You've got to have a student that's really interested in it, or it's just gonna, or a post, a trainee, I should say, or it's gonna fall apart. So for Brad, two factors he considers when making a decision on collaborations are interest, student, and postdoc power. I asked him what other metrics he uses to predict whether a project might be successful. Really deciding what's a good project and what's not a good project. So I look for a a past history of their collaborative efforts. Does it align with my interests? For instance, I've got this, uh, I've always been interested in structural proteins and the postsynaptic density. But I'm not a molecular biologist. And in order to look at these types of proteins, I really need to collaborate with a molecular biologist. And so they have these complementary approaches that they they don't necessarily do physiology, electrophysiology like I do. And so they need me, I need them uh, type collaboration. So I wouldn't necessarily collaborate with somebody who does electrophysiology, for example. That wouldn't be fruitful. They can do what I can do. But if I can collaborate with a, a molecular biologist who makes transgenic mice and characterizes their behaviors, for example, that's turned out to be a beautiful collaboration. And a very easy collaboration to parse out ownership, too. Um, There's no fuzzy lines in the ownership. The collaborator does this, I do that. So that has been really, the best collaborations I've had so far have, have really looked at that. To have a symbiotic collaboration, Brad considers his own lab's strengths and capabilities and the collaborator's strengths and also how they can proceed and benefit mutually. I then asked Brad to give us an example of a beautiful scientific relationship. Rob Malinka is, was my uh, postdoctoral mentor out of Stanford, and he surrounded himself with some fantastic scientists. And most recently, he collaborates with Tom Sudoff. Essentially, they share lab space. And so Rob uses the, the models that Tom has developed, all his presynaptic uh, protein models, to study uh, postsynaptic manipulations. And it's, it's just been a beautiful relationship as far as science goes. And that's one of the things that I like to, I, I see how that, uh, they complement each other as far as science go, and I try to model my, my future based on their successes. Brad also shares advice that he would give to a new junior faculty starting out about one, how to be strategic about spending the startup funding, and two, suggestions for hiring. First, though, he talks about how and where to invest the startup. I don't remember who it was that told me this, but uh, um, early on I was told, before I, when I was working on my budget, um, it's not, equipment doesn't collect data, people collect data. Uh, so I was, you know, I was told that, you know, keep that, you can have one piece of equipment and run it 24-7 and have three shifts if you want to, but it's hands that actually collect the data. With that in mind, I tried to focus my resources towards uh, a couple postdocs and multiple students, um, so more towards manpower. And then I built up the 
the equipment as the years went on. But I also one thing that made it help me make the decision about the equipment was that R00 has a cap of direct and indirect costs. It's different than other types of R's, for example. It's it's capped at $249,000. And one of the things that I learned right off the bat is that I could buy my equipment and that there's no indirect cost for that equipment. So I can take that $249,000 and stretch the indirect component or shrink the indirect component by by charging all the equipment to that indirect to that R00 and charging the salaries to my startup. Um, so that stretched that money a little bit. And then also another decision is a lot of people that I've talked to over the years, they want to hold on to that startup money. And I got some great advice from my grad school mentor, Danny Winder. And he, he told me, he's like, you know, they call it startup money for a reason. There's no such thing as finish-up money. Like That money's out there to get you rolling, to get going, get going fast, because it's, it's a very competitive field and you want to collect as much data and get as many publications out as soon as possible to make your impact in the field and to to develop your niche so that way you can you know when you go to apply for those R01s that you've you've got the publication record you've got the track record and that's what that money is there for you can always ask for more money later and now Brad shares about how he handles the personnel part when starting out really it's getting the right people in so that you develop a lab memory so that you can get those students to learn. Once those students learn these techniques and how things roll, then I have more time to devote now behind the desk writing grants, writing manuscripts, while they're out collecting data and they're developing new questions. And then we, it's just propagating itself. So really it's an investing in the individuals that are that you're training. The more you invest into them, the bigger the payout is, the exponential payout because like I said, they propagate that to the next student, and the next trainee, and the next postdoc, and it just grows from there. And it's been a wonderful experience watching that growth as well. It's very rewarding watching those students learn and watching that information propagate from student to student. Uh, they've taught me a lot by doing that. It was really refreshing to hear Brad share that his priority are his graduate students and postdocs. So then I actually had one last question for Brad. Whenever he told his lab that there was one rig and they were going to have three shifts, how did they do it? Did he nominate someone to work the night shift? <laughs> well, the sad part was that was me. <laughs> so I worked that late that late shift. Um, and it turned out that uh, they were naive, as, as I was. So they were, oh, okay, okay, sounds great. And that night shift turned into a, or that, that three shifts turned into a, an early morning shift, an afternoon shift, and then a late evening shift. Um, so we weren't exactly burning 24 hours, but it was a good 18-hour day uh, as far as that rig was going. But, um, and I will say that that was short-lived for my, my time on that rig. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they, they saw the data coming in, and they were, they were able to share just fine, and they coordinated with each other. And some days that they needed, uh, they'd, they'd have all day to, to collect that data. And so the on many days they'd share within a day, but also they'd share um, based on the mouse uh, availability, so transgenic mouse availability. Um, they were, they'd have days off, so the the other, uh, so my postdoc could work all day, for example, while the student um, studied, for instance. Mm-hmm. So it, was, it turned out to be kind of forcing people to interact with each other uh, on, at that level. They they trained each other as well, 
and uh, um, so it it worked. <laughs> I had the personalities worked, so that was that was a good part. We laughed about how it helped the students and postdocs to see him get his hands dirty. I hope you enjoyed listening to Brad share stories about how he approaches collaboration strategically and how he considers ways that the collaboration not only benefits his personal research and career interests, but also how it benefits the people in his lab. Thank you for listening to Strategy for Scientists. Interested in learning more? Check out the online lectures co-produced by iBiology at the UCSF Office of Career and Professional Development. We'd like to thank the Burroughs Welcome Fund and the NIH National Institute of General Medical Sciences, or NIGMS, for grant funding. Thanks also to PRX Podcast Garage in Boston for the studio space and helping us to get started with this production. Tune in for more stories about scientists using strategy.